Good morning again and welcome to GCC. This morning we'll be in the book of 1 Kings. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn there with me. The book of 1 Kings, chapter 2. First Kings chapter 2. This morning we'll be looking at the first 12 verses of this chapter. And in this text we find what may very well be King David's last words before his death. What may be David's last words before his death. They are at least the last words recorded in the book of 1 Kings before he dies at the end of our text. So before we read the text, let's uh, uh, pray together to the Lord. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are the one who inspired these scriptures for our learning. You're the one who moved men of old by the Holy Spirit to write them down. You're the one who has us reading this text and meditating on it this morning and so we ask father that you would illumine our hearts that you would help us to read mark learn pay attention inwardly digest make this text our food today feed us on christ we ask that you would exalt the lord jesus christ in our hearts and minds and be with us in your spirit we ask all these things in the name of christ and for his glory amen so our, our text is in 1 Kings chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12, beginning with verse 1. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close, close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother. And there is also with you Shimei the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with a sword. 
Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do with him. And you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he write its eternal truth on our hearts. If we were to summarize in one exhortation the message of this text, we could say it like this. Bind yourself to God. Bind yourself to God. This is what we see in David's words, in his desire for Solomon's life. And it's what we see in the lives of these three men mentioned in the second half of our text. Bind yourself to God. And we'll just divide it into two parts. Bind yourself to God's word and bind yourself to God's king. Bind yourself to God by binding yourself to God's word and then bind yourself to God's king. So let's start with the first part. Like we said, these are probably some of David's last words before he dies. And he instructs Solomon in verse 2 to be strong and show himself a man and to keep the charge of the Lord your God, his God, walking in his ways. If you know David's story, and even, even from the end of our text, we see that he's lived a long life. He's reigned for 40 years over Israel. And David knows, after all the battles he's fought, all the trials he's went through, David knows that God's word is the root that holds throughout the years. David knows that God's word is unchangeable. That it is the only thing that we can hold on to as time flies. Because it is the word of God, and God never changes. God does not repent of what he has said. We just started a new year, and we've seen a lot of change in the last year, haven't we? We've seen a lot of change in the way we think about health. We know that science and politics change. Presidents come and go. Culture and society change. Our bodies change. Even our knowledge and our our convictions can change. But there is something that never changes, and that is the Word of God. Our God and His Word remain forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our Lord remains forever. And that's what David charges Solomon to keep. We see in these, uh, verse, in these words how the Word of God is connected with courage. David says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, be strong. And show yourself a man. Keep the commandments of God. This exhortation about courage is similar to the one that Joshua received uh, from the Lord when he he was about to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. If you know Joshua chapter 1, the Lord tells him to be strong and courageous. And then the Lord tells him to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. And this mirrors exactly the words that Joshua received from the Lord. David says, when David says, show yourself a man, he means be courageous. So the word of God and courage go together in this text, and they go together in many other texts in the scriptures. Why are they together here? Because they always go together in our life. The word of God gives courage. The word of God gives courage, and that's what David wants Solomon to have. 
the word will give Solomon the same courage that Joshua had to conquer God's enemies. We are all made of dust, as Greg already mentioned. We are weak and insignificant. When we're compared to the world around us, we realize how transient we are. We just passed into a new year, and you realize people have passed into a new year for thousands of years. And you're not going to be here for even a hundred of them. You're very weak and insignificant. You're even weaker when you compare yourself to God's angels. And most of all, you're weak when you compare yourself to God. We don't think enough about how small our footprint in the world is. You need courage to do what God requires of you in this short time that you have. Where will you find courage? You'll find it in the word of God, just like Solomon had to in in this text. How can Solomon fulfill this command to be firm and courageous that David wants him to do? By standing on the word of God. About two years ago, there was a pastor in Chengdu, China. I'm sure some of you have heard about this story. Who was arrested and later sentenced for his faithfulness to Christ. And this pastor in China, when he was arrested, he published a list of resolutions to which he committed himself. And one of these resolutions sounds like this. He says, I will disobey in a peaceful manner and will not cooperate with the police's inquiry and questioning either until I acquire the Bible or until the police torture me brutally to the point of crushing my health and spirit. He says, I will not talk to you. I will not cooperate until you give me a Bible to read every day. This pastor knew that his strength comes from the word of God. You can see it in his words. The Bible was his source of strength. One of the saddest statistics from last year comes from surveys about people's daily Bible reading habits, showing that the number of adults in the U.S. who read read scripture daily has decreased during the pandemic. Brothers and sisters, if we value the word of God, That should not be the case about us. Do you want to withstand the waves of life? Do you want to be ready for whatever life throws at you? You don't know what this new year holds for you, but do you want to be ready? Then bind yourself to God's word. Put your trust in the word of God. There is no better place to rest as the source of your strength, as the source of your hope for the new year. Bind yourself to God's word. Look at the language that David uses here when he talks about obedience. Not only does the Bible give you courage, but it also guides you in righteous living. Look at this language. He says in verse 3, Keep the charge of the Lord, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes. Then in verse 4, Paying close attention to the way, walking before the Lord in faithfulness with all your heart and all your soul. All of us are sinners, David and Solomon included. And so they not only need courage, but they need a guide for righteous living. If you know anything about David's story, you know that David has personally gone through a great moral fall in his walk with the Lord. And so he instructs his son to stay close to the word of God. That's how you make it when you sin, when you fall. That's how you come back to the Lord by sticking to the word of God. He wants his son to stick to the word 
because it will be his guide for living a righteous life, for living a godly life. If I told you today a very simple way to live in the center of God's will for your life, would you do it? That's what David gives Solomon here. He gives him a simple way to live a life that pleases God. And it's astonishing just how simple it is because a child can do it. And yet, over and over again in the scriptures, we find that this is a royal job. One of my friends, when he teaches teenagers and children in school, when he wants them to get interested in the word of God, he says, do you want to do what kings of old did and had to do every day? Then study the word of God. It was a royal job to study the word of God. Studying the word was an assignment given to kings. That's what David is teaching Solomon here. And if this was a word given to kings, we should not think it beneath us to occupy ourselves with it. Bind yourself to God's word. That's what David wants Solomon to do here. And the third reason we see in this text for binding ourselves to God's word is in verses 3 and 4. Again, uh, we see that at the end of verse 3, David invokes a promise from God for Solomon. He says that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. And then in verse 4, David quotes word by word a promise from God giving to David's house. If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So the third reason to, to bind yourself to God's word has to do with God's promises. Now, before we apply this to our lives, there's two caveats we need to make, two observations. The first is that these promises do not, do not apply to us directly. Um, Solomon is God's king over God's people, and we are not. That throne is occupied forever by the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that that first part about prosperity that says that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, uh, even though it's applied to Solomon here, in a sense it is applied to describe the blessings of obedience in other texts of Scripture. So we know in some way it has to apply to us. But this promise cannot mean, it cannot mean having a risk-free, danger-free life having all your pockets full of material blessings. Think about it. This is obvious when you look at the rest of Scripture. Nobody ever loved the Word of God like the Word incarnate, Jesus. And yet he had nowhere to lay his head. Few characters in, scriptures, in Scripture loved the Word like the author of Psalm 119, a song of love for the word, a song, a song of praise to the word of God. And yet, if you read that psalm carefully, you will see that things did not always go well for the author of that psalm. He describes going through the wilderness. He describes going through life like a pilgrim desiring to return to God's house. And so it, it cannot mean just having your pockets free, danger-free, risk-free life, too blessed to be stressed. But I think it is, there's a better way to understand that phrase, and that is to understand it as referring to success insofar as it glorifies God and serves your own good. 
Success insofar as it glorifies God and serves your own good. And frequently, success in the eyes of God looks like failure in the eyes of men. In connection with obedience to the word of God, the one thing we can say for certain is that it places you in a successful place to fulfill God's will in your life. And so these are promises, and I want us to notice the principle that uh, leads David to say what he says here. David knows that God's promises are fulfilled by God's word. He says, Solomon, bind yourself to the word because that's how God's promises are fulfilled in your life. That's why he wants Solomon to be immersed in the word. That's why he quotes the words of God to Solomon. If Solomon is to inherit the promises of God that God made to David in his house, he needs to know and obey the word of God. Not perfectly because he's a sinner, but faithfully. Not perfectly, but faithfully. And David is telling Solomon here, bind yourself to the word of God because it will teach you the promises of God and it will fulfill the promises of God in your life. Think about it. How else are you going to trust in the Lord? How else are God's promises going to be fulfilled in your life if the word of God is not doing its work in your life? You need the word of God to be at work in your life for you to walk in the way of God's promises. So that's what we learn from this first part of this text. Bind yourself to God's word. Bind yourself to God's word because it is unchangeable, because it gives you courage, like we saw for Solomon and Joshua, because it is your guide for righteous living. David desires Solomon to live a holy and obedient life. And lastly, because it teaches and fulfills the promises of God in your life. How else are you going to, going to inherit all the promises of, your, of the gospel if the word of God is not at work in your life? So bind yourself to God's word. But then we move to the second part of this, of this text in which we see David telling Solomon that he needs to get his kingdom in order. You need to settle these accounts is what David says. And uh, I hope it goes without saying, the instruction here is not that at the beginning of the new year you need to go find all your enemies and settle your accounts. Um, the instruction here for us is not that we need to settle our accounts, but I think we can learn from these three characters about whom David is speaking here. We can learn from their lives and from, the, from what David says here about them. Like we said, David and Solomon are unique in the way that they are acting in this chapter as royal representatives of God over God's people. And so we have these three characters that represent three different attitudes towards God's king. Three different attitudes towards God's king. And each, each one of us should just encourage us to bind ourselves to God's king. Uh, we'll take them out of order, but I hope... By the time we end, it'll be clear why we went through them in this order. So we'll start with Shimei in verse 8. Look at what it says here. There is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when, I, when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to the death by the sword. 
Now therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are wise men, you will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. So Shimei was a character who hated David. He cursed David when David was at one of his most vulnerable places in his life. And David is giving Solomon instructions here on what to do with this guy. Shimei is a citizen of Israel, but to David he is a traitor. He opposed David's authority and he betrayed David on a dark, dark day. And he never repented. He never repented. Like it says here in verse 8, Shimei was a Benjaminite. And if you know Israel's history, you know that the Benjaminite tribe, tribe, tribe of Benjamin, that was the tribe of Saul. And somehow David had a strained relationship with this tribe. This tribe never got over over Saul's rejection. They never quite liked David. And there's several characters in the history of Israel that really are opposed to David. And they're all from Benjamin, or many of them are from Benjamin. So they never really got over Saul's rejection, and so they never really liked David. They were all, always thought that something was fishy about David, about the way he got the kingdom, the way he got power, and they never submitted to him fully. So whenever they had the opportunity, this tribe, they would pursue David and betray David. And when you think about Shimei, it is a very frightful thing, the way his whole life is summarized here in one verse. He cursed God's king. That's what David says here. No matter what else good he may have done to someone else, no matter how good he thought he was, his whole life is summarized in one phrase. He cursed and opposed God's king. Opposition to God's king is not a light matter. Just like it was for Shimei, so it, so it is for us. It's a matter of life and death. And a very simple application from Shimei's example in this text is that it is a warning call to repent. A warning call to repent before it is too late. According to the Bible, God's king today and God's king forever is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches us that our natural attitude towards this king is nothing better than Shimei. Given to our own desires, to our own proclivities, we would curse and oppose God's king our whole life and we would never repent. In our natural state, we have no love for him and we are in fact his enemies desiring to betray and destroy him. And the glorious news of the gospel, like we heard this morning, is that you don't have to end your life the way Shimei did. The last sentence about your life doesn't have to end, doesn't have to be like the one here about Shimei. The gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, God's eternal king, died for his enemies so that they would be forgiven. Christ was given over to wrath and condemned for enemies like Shimei here, who betrayed him. God's king, the Lord Jesus Christ, took the punishment of God for sinners, so that sinners like Shimei would be reconciled to him and have eternal life. And that applies to you and me. Shimei's story teaches us that God cares about justice. 
And there's two things it teaches us about enemies. And the first thing it teaches us about the way Christ deals with his enemies. Like we just mentioned, all of us are born as enemies of God. All of, all of us are born as enemies of God and his king. And there are only two ways that God's enemies end. It's either reconciled to God in Christ or judged by God through Christ. There's only two ends. There's only two ways this ends. There are no other options. And David says here in verse 8, in verse 9, he tells Solomon, don't let this, this guy go down in peace to Sheol. If you're here listening to the sermon, you're not in Sheol yet. So there's time for you to repent. If you uh, read the rest of this chapter, you'll see Shimei was given a last opportunity to save his life. But he doesn't listen. He doesn't take God's king seriously. And it doesn't look like he repented at all. And if you're here and you're outside of Christ, thank God that you're listening to these words. Because God is, through Christ, appealing to you, be reconciled to God today. You don't have to go to hell with your sins over your head. Whatever sins you've committed, that blood does not have to stay on your hands. Because Christ died for sinners, and he is an all-sufficient Savior. One day it was too late for Shimei. And you see, his problem was that he thought he could get away from judgment. His problem was he thought the king kind of forgot. He's kind of, you know, uh, lost in the details. But this text teaches us that every sin is accounted before God. That God does not lose keeping track. The Bible promises that God is faithful both to judge sin and to forgive sin when you repent. So it's not too late for you to repent of your sins, to turn to Christ today, to put your trust in the Lord Jesus today. And the Bible says that God is faithful and just to forgive you your sin on account of Christ. God's king will receive his enemies when they repent and turn to him. So bind yourself to God's king as your only hope for that day of judgment that you just heard about from Greg. Bind yourself to God's king for that day of judgment when the sentence is said about you. May it be justified in Christ, forgiven in Christ, righteous in Christ, and not judged by Christ. There are texts in the New Testament that are very sobering, just like the one we read this morning from 1 Thessalonians 5 and others, that say it's not a pretty sight when Christ comes back to judge his enemies. So bind yourself to God's king as your hope for that day. On the other hand, Shimei's story teaches us about justice in the way God deals with our enemies. With the way God deals with the enemies of his church and of his kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ, God's king today, is exalted and is seated at the right hand of God. So there's not much that people can do to him. But how do they persecute him today? By persecuting his church. Remember what Paul uh, heard from Jesus on the road to Damascus? Why are you persecuting me? When Paul was persecuting Christians. And so Christ's church has a lot of enemies in the world today. You can begin with large and obvious enemies like the Communist Party in China that persecutes Christians. 
You can go to smaller enemies, but still enemies, like local magistrates that prioritize casinos over corporate worship and the meetings of the church, all the way to the random person on the street that arrogantly mocks Christians for their faith. These are all enemies of Christ, and unless they repent, they will end just like Shimei. The Bible says that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And like we said, when God's king descends and judges the nations, it's an awful and frightening thing. Shimei doesn't get away from judgment here, and neither will our enemies as the church. God promises to vindicate his church on the last day. Just like he forgets the sins of those in Christ and does not remember them anymore, the sins of those outside Christ are counted, each and every one of them. The king remembers and keeps count. Just like Shimei doesn't get away from judgment here, neither will our enemies. They will either be, God's justice against them will either be satisfied in Christ or satisfied on their head when God judges them. One way or another, all accounts are settled on the last day. There's no outstanding debts. God rewards to the righteous and he rewards to the unrighteous. And God's wrath will be satisfied against every single sin, either in Christ or outside him. So that's Shimei. We learn from Shimei the way Christ deals with his enemies and the way Christ deals with our enemies. Uh, let's go on to Joab, the second character we'll look at. This, it's in verses 5 and 6. This is the first one David mentions. Uh, maybe this has some, something to do with the fact that he's the closest one in David's circle. And we'll see how uh, frightening that example is. So in verse 5 he says, You know what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me? How he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. If you know Israel's history, someone asks you, who was Joab? you would have thought, based on everything you've read about Joab in the book of 2 Samuel, you would have thought that Joab was one of the good guys, right? He was on David's side. But one of the great things about Scripture is that the Word of God is brutally honest about the way life is. And there's characters like Joab today that pretend to serve Christ. Joab was David's brave commander. And he was a warrior who led David's armies. And if you didn't have the book of 1 Kings, chapters 1 to 1 through 3, and a couple other episodes, you would have thought he's one of the heroes. Maybe he even deserves to be in Hebrews 11, because we want to imitate, be like Joab, right? He's one of the good guys. He bravely fought for David's kingdom multiple times. Joab even put his life on the line for David. Multiple times, David would trust him with his life. But the more time passed, and you can see this if you read the history in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings carefully, the more time passed, 
the clearer it became that Joab's heart was not entirely given to David. Joab's heart was divided. You can see how Joab's heart over time slowly strays farther and farther away from David. Like David says here, Joab killed at least two other commanders of Israel. And at the end of David's life, just in the previous chapter in in 1 Kings 1, you can read the chapter and see how Joab basically betrays David at the end of David's life. He refuses to support Solomon, who was the appointed heir, and uh, joins a coup, basically, to take over power with another one of David's sons. Now, this is a man that spent tens of years with David, who risked his life for David, and yet at the end of his life, his divided heart became evident. And just like Joab did with David, there are people today who profess love for the Lord for many years, and then in the end, they make a shipwreck of their faith. Make a shipwreck of their faith, they forsake the faith, And for years, maybe even decades, it seems like you're all serving the same king. This is one of the good guys, right? Seems like they do great works for the kingdom. Like like they came and told Jesus, like Jesus says about the last day, they come and say, didn't we do great things for you, Lord? But in the end, their divided heart, the heart that's not committed to the Lord, is revealed. Joab's story is a sober warning about how easy it is to be a false disciple that kind of follows Jesus. Follows Jesus for the accolades, either for the popularity or the authority or the money. How easy it is to be a professing believer on the outside, but a completely different person on the inside. Just like Judas was for the Lord Jesus. A man who's, I mean, up there with the Lord Jesus, right? He's one of the good guys we're supposed to imitate if you were there before Judas betrayed Jesus. But their divided heart becomes revealed over time. We don't know uh, everything about the end of Job's life. Uh, We don't know if he was saved, but we know that he was so harmful to David and to David's kingdom that David says here he needs to be dealt with. And if you look at David's language in verse 6, it's striking how similar, almost identical this language is as what he says about Shimei. So this guy has served him because he had a divided heart and was never fully committed to David. He basically gives him the same sentence as he gives to his enemies. It's almost as negative as it is about Shimei. So Joab's story teaches us about our daily and constant need for grace. Not just grace at some point in the past, but in the present and in the future. Joab's story tells us that God's work through us in the past does not guarantee our faithfulness in the future. We need daily grace. We need watchfulness over our hearts. Or else we will walk away from the Lord like many others. And many of us in this room know people like that. We've seen it happen, and every now and then you'll hear it about some famous pastor, famous leader in the church. 
It's a reminder about our daily and constant need for grace from God and watchfulness. And if we look at uh, David's indictment of Joab, there's some very specific acts he points out. Is this the way he killed these two commanders? And David says, he avenged in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war. We could go into a lecture here on just war theory and righteous ways to do war according to the Bible. We'll leave that for a different time. But let's just pay attention to Job's behavior here and what was driving his heart. Um, he shed blood in time of peace against his own brothers, against fellow Israelites. Again, if you know Israel's history, if you know anything about Joab, you know Joab loved a good fight. A good fight was what, was what his heart was beating for. And he was really good at it. It's the reason David trusted him with his armies. But here was Joab's problem. His heart couldn't tell the difference between when it's time to fight and when it's not. His heart could never tell the difference. And so he ended up shooting his own, out of his own selfish desires, unjustly. The devil loves dividing the kingdom of God through men like Joab. For Joab, it was fighting that he loved more than he loved David. Maybe for some of us, it's arguments or fighting, or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's some other calling or gift or talent that God has given you and entrusted you with. God has called you to serve the kingdom with that gift, but then you realize you love the gift more than you love the giver. You love your gift or your ministry or whatever opportunity for serving that God has given you more than you love the king you're supposed to serve. And that's where trouble starts. That's how hearts become divided and go astray. So Joab's story is a reminder and a warning for each of us. Are you truly committed? Are you truly committed to God's king above everything else? Above opportunities to serve? Above your own gifts? Above, above the pleasure you feel when you're recognized for your gifts? Are you truly committed to God's king above everything else? At the beginning of the year, it's a good time to look back and see the direction we're going. And just ask yourself, is your heart divided? Are you trying to walk in step with God's people here and then in step with the world over there? Are your commitments divided between Christ, the exalted king, and the world with its desires and passions? Is your heart divided? And if you're here and you realize that you are, repent and trust in Christ. Bind yourself to God's king and commit yourself to him fully. Give everything you have on the altar for the king. Because he is glorious and he deserves it. So we've looked at Shimei, we've looked at Joab. But then in these last important words, David remembers not only his enemies, not only those who betrayed him, but David also remembers his friends. Look at verse 7. He says, Deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. 
By contrast to the other two characters, we see Barzillai the Gileadite being praised and his sons blessed. And Barzillai's story teaches us about the fact that God's king remembers not only sins, he also remembers faithfulness. God's king remembers our faithfulness. Often when we think about, about the past, maybe we think we should only, only remember our regrets, only remember the things that went wrong, only remember the things that we wish we did differently. And it's good to, self, to have self-examination, just like we, uh, we've been talking about. But it's also good to remember that if you're in Christ, then you're justified, and your works, your weak, imperfect, fraught with sin good works are justified together with you. They are accepted before God, even our weakest good works. And our faithfulness is God's work, is the work of His grace. And scriptures teach us that faithfulness and our faith is precious before the Lord. That He remembers the faithful. Our faithfulness and our obedience is known and rewarded by God. Just like we see with Barzillai. Barzillai served the king when the king was in a vulnerable, dark moment. He served the kingdom. His commitment to David was unwavering. And God's king does not forget his faithful ones. When you think about your life, maybe over the last year or just in general, about the things you do, whether it be the good works you did, or the time you spent serving others, or the finances you've sacrificed, or the hours spent in prayer for the lost, or the time spent serving the church, investing in godliness, parenting, teaching others the word, encouraging, exhorting, rebuking, confronting, all of these things that, that represent our weak, imperfect faithfulness. God's work in our lives. It's important to see God blessing that and knowing that God rewards that. God remembers that. Barzillai here wasn't some great and famous hero of the Bible. He barely gets a couple of verses. He wasn't a judge. He wasn't a leader in Israel. He wasn't a prophet as far as we know. He wasn't a king. Barzillai did not make it into Hebrews 11. He was just an ordinary, faithful man. And David remembered him. David remembered him. The king remembered him. And the king made sure that he is rewarded. And this encourages us to be faithful to God's king, to be thankful for our faithfulness, which is itself a gift from God, and to know that our perseverance in being faithful is rewarded by the Lord. He encourages us ourselves to bind ourselves to God's king. So the message of this text in one sentence is, bind yourself to God. And there's two ways we do that. We bind ourselves to God's word, and we bind ourselves to God's king. May these things be fulfilled in our lives. Let's pray. King Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for your word. We thank that you are a faithful king, faithful to your promises, watching over your word to fulfill it. And Lord, we ask that you would make us faithful disciples. 
We ask that you would bind our hearts and minds to you, that we would be fully and undividedly committed to you. Help us to be committed to you and to your word now and forever. Lord, we acknowledge that in our own strength we are not able to fulfill these things and to do them. But we thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit that is living and active and working in our lives. Help us to take heed of these warning, to rejoice of these promises, and to rest in you as our all-sufficient King. Help us to be bound in this new year, committed to your word, and committed to your kingdom. We ask these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.